Thank you for coming back to another episode of Backlash Podcast. This week we're going to talk to Danny Herbeck, and well, when I say we, I mean Brad. It's supposed to be Carrie's episode, but Carrie just did all the setup work on it, and that's about as far as she went with it, right, Carrie? I mean, I don't know what happened over there. Well, it's Brad and Danny. Yep. That's all you need to know. Right. So I got a few words in, but not a ton. Yeah, <laughs> on the plus side, I got a bunch of work done during this episode, so that's pretty good, Brad. I appreciate that. <laughs> oh, I'm glad I could help you. <laughs> I needed a little bit of time to get some stuff done. It's it's a busy week as per usual. I'm heading off to a Muskie Expo, so when you hear this episode, we will be setting up uh, the very next day at the Wisconsin Muskie Expo. That's the one up in Rothschild. It's the Central Wisconsin Convention Center, and we're going to kick off that show at two o'clock on Friday, and it goes till eight p.m. And then on Saturday, we're there from 9 a.m. till 6 p.m. And then on Sunday, we are there from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. You know, some of the seminars you're going to find will be um, a Mike Keys, Jeff Vandermortel, Rich Reinhardt, Noah Binsfield, things like that. A bunch of friends of mine and a bunch of people that you've probably actually seen around or heard from in the muskie industry quite a bit. So that's kind of what I'm up to, and that's why things are a little bit short on my end. I'm trying to button up all the loose ends so that I can finally be done with show season. Not that we haven't had a good time, but it's always nice to be able to unpack the trailer, put things away, and begin the season, as I'm sure Brad is maybe starting to enjoy that. Yeah, actually, this uh, Monday and Tuesday, that's what I did. We had a little bit decent weather. I'd say you know it almost hit 30, so that felt good. We were able to unload the trailers and reload them basically as a storage unit for the rest of the season. So I'm not going to complain whatsoever. feels good to be past that. That means that we're getting closer to the season. It's good to know that I'm not the only one that used the trailer as like an extra storage area during non-show season. Well, whenever you build a building, right, you think that you made it way too big. But uh, at the end of the day, I think everybody could uh, agree you never have a big enough building for everything that you accumulate over years. That's for sure. I can say, though, i got to give my wife a little bit of credit. When we built this building that we're in right now, she said, this isn't big enough. And I'm like, are you serious? Like, we got plenty of room. I'm like, look at this. So we don't even have anything down this whole fifth row over here. And she's like, it's still not big enough. Guess what? She was right. <laughs> you have a pretty intelligent wife, though. Yeah, I'm not going to say that here, though. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to make sure she listens to that, that she's, intro. That she's not going to listen to this episode. That's a fact. <laughs> if she does, it's only because you told her that we need to or she needs to. I'm not above that. <laughs> our our shop, our shop, we just need to have a giant garage sale and get rid of some stuff. And then we'd have a bit more room. Like selling boats and stuff, you mean? Uh, well, you you know that's not going to happen. No, that's it, it's sacrilegious. You only add boats. You never get rid of boats. You never go down in the amount of boats that you have. You never sell boats and you never sell guns. Is that what you're getting at? Yeah, exactly. Or if you sell a boat, you replace it with another boat. You don't ha start with two boats, sell a boat, and only stay at one boat. That's just silly. Well, at least you and Brad are on the same page there. That's right. I know Brad's shaking his head in agreement over there. That's for sure. He, he is. He's got a big old smile on his face. <laughs> well, that's true. It's funny. There's, I think Paul Hartman came up to me at the show and a few others, and I said, man, Brad, 
you know, what is your deal? Every time I see you, you're in a different kind of boat. And I'm like, well, you know, I kind of like boats. And the deal is, is I'm trying to build a fleet. So Carrie thinks it's already a fleet, but I think there's maybe one or two more in the future. I'm just trying to get it so I have one per family member. That's it. So I still got a little ways well, to we're, go. We're already above that ratio. Oh, well, then you just need to have more family members. Yeah, the problem is, yeah. <laughs> we, yeah, something like that. We have a lot of gypsies. Does that count? Yes, those will be family members for the summer, at least, which is when you're using the boats. So the math right. adds up. Mm-hmm. Right. But now the problem is, is we have way more boats than we have trucks to pull them. Well, solve that problem by buying more trucks, right? No. <laughs> It would be nice, Jeff, if you never had to unhook, right? You never do unhook. <laughs> I won't disagree. The, he pulls in the drive. They don't separate. I mean, honest to God, if it separates three times through the summer, it's a lot. Yeah, sounds like One, you need to buy a new truck then, Brad. And a lot of times they only separate if he wants to trade boats. You know, if he wants a different boat, then they'll separate. But it just automatically hooks right back up to a different boat. And away he goes. And that goes all the way through the musky season. And then, like, sometimes, depending on where he's at, right in the duck hunting. And he just stays all hooked up to the boat. So, like, for me, I never get to drive that truck. Never. Well, sounds like Brad's living the dream over there. That's all I hear. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I think he is. But I'm not sure if he sees it quite that way. Right. Well, I mean, it, it sounds to me like you need more bo- you need more trucks, Brad, to pull all these boats, which I hear it's pretty easy to get those these days. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You, you kind of know that whole thing. How's that working out for you? Pretty good. We're, um, you know, I bought a truck for show season, and uh, show season's going to be ending on, you know, shortly after you hear this episode, and I still don't have my truck. So that was uh, <laughs> that was money well spent. Right. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, you'll be good for next year. Yeah, I know. I One of my buddies of mine, he's like, well, you don't need it during non-show season. He's like, why don't you just sell it at a profit and then reorder another? I said, yeah, and then who knows what the price is going to be and who knows if it's going to show up. Yep. We all got it rough. We do. Things we complain about, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Americans, we have it pretty easy. Mm-hmm. Hey, Brad, I think that... Uh, we haven't maybe talked about episode number five of Mayhem's 10,000 Casts. Why don't you talk a little bit about that? Well, it was kind of the uh, the title kind of gives it away, right? It's the beginning of the end. And what I mean by that is, plain and simple, it was the end of the season. And it was just the beginning in the sense that I feel like I finally found my rhythm. If uh, anybody out there hasn't watched Mayhem's 10,000 Casts, I would definitely encourage you to watch the fifth episode because I think it's probably my best work to date as far as editing and the quality of fish was really good. There's a few learning tips in there. It's what I want to emulate from here on out. If I can continue to improve on my editing, I think I might have something, Jeff. That's pretty cool. I'll have to check it out. I think it came out when we were in Minnesota, so I definitely didn't watch it yet, but I'll get around to it. I don't know, soon enough, hopefully before I leave for this expo that we got coming up this weekend. I learned a lot this past season, and what I mean by that is the editing side. By no means do I think I'm a professional. I say it right in the intro. Uh, When it comes to the media side, the videography, the editing, and so on and so forth. But I truly do enjoy it. And if you're into watching raw musky footage, guess what? That's what I provide. 
Yeah, I think you do a great job, Brad. Appreciate that, Jeff, very much. If you're looking for gear for this season, the last thing we got to talk about before we go and talk to Danny, check out TeamRhinoOutdoors.com or MuskyMayhemTackle.com. Either one of us will have you enough gear for you to get out on the water and catch a few extra muskies. But got nothing else to add to this. Let's get on the phone with Danny. All right, our guest this week is Danny Herbeck. And if you want to learn a little bit more about Danny, you could check out episode 68, and then you can also check him out on a guide panel, episode 90. But Danny, it's been quite a while since we've had you on for, you know, we've gained a couple new listeners along the way. Why don't you kind of talk a little bit about who you are, what you're up to, and I mean, because it's even been a while since we've talked to you. So why don't you kind of, I guess, bring us all up to speed on what's going on with you. Yeah, sure. Sounds good. Uh, you know, once again, I want to thank all you guys for, uh, you know, asking me to do this. I greatly appreciate it. So I'm up here in Vermilion Bay. You know, I guide mainly on Eagle Lake. Not for just muskies. I, you know, I fish it all, but uh, muskies is one of my best and favorite fish to, you know, target. I work out of Andy Myers Lodge. I guide there for Julian Kelka. And that's uh, pretty much on the fishing side of things. And now, obviously, up here, we're in the dead of winter still and doing a little bit of ice fishing and just patiently waiting for uh, for spring to come and get back on the lake. How far out do you think you are right now, Danny, with open water? I mean, I know you guys, it's really crazy how the weather kind of uh, mirrors what we have down here in our area. And it's been one cold, nasty winter with tons of snow. So, you know, how far out do you think you'll be before you see some open water? It's hard to say. Um, we have more ice now at this time of year than I've ever seen. Uh, more snow right now at this time of year than I've ever seen. We probably have more snow this winter than we've had in the last two or three winters combined, which is obviously very needed. You know, we had a lot of low water on all the lakes um, up here, so we need a lot of snow to kind of bounce back from that. I mean... It seems like Mother Nature always finds a way to get you on the lake for, for opening day of walleye. Sometimes it's not as nice and, and as far along as it always is. I would like to think, you know, middle of May, we should be able to see some open water if, if the weather cooperates is the main thing. Well, you know, you touched on a couple of things there that I want to circle back on. We're kind of in the same boat down here in my neck of the woods. I think Jeff over there in Wisconsin, northern Wisconsin, it's a little milder than what we pretty much deal with, but... That's part of the gig. You know, one of the things that, did you have an early ice out last year? Yeah, we did. We had a, we had an early spring, early ice out and you know, the water was, it was even low coming into last spring as well. So we need to kind of get back to normal in a sense, right? We, it seems like every year the ice would come out earlier and earlier and we have warmer and warmer springs and it was kind of changing the whole progressional movements of all these fish and where they were come to when seasons opened up and you had to kind of change on what you're doing for opener. But this year, I don't think that's going to be the case at all. I think it's going to be like a, you know, normal to later spring, which will uh, kind of return back to the, the olden days, if you want to call it that. Yeah, I would agree with that, Danny. I know last June, a year ago, June, we really struggled. I mean, my typical open water trolling bite was very down. It was not the classic open water stuff that I would normally do. I mean, don't get me wrong. We had some good days, but man, we had a lot of bad days too. 
Now, progressing into July, things really started turning on. And I think a big part of that is, you know, a lot of my clients in the month of June, they definitely want to do the trolling thing, and that's why they booked me. And so I felt kind of tied down or locked into a certain pattern that uh, maybe we should have maybe changed a little bit. Well, I was going to say is what you see with that June that you're trolling bite, a lot of those fish, while they're out there, they're post-spawn, right? And when you have an early spring like that, that is long gone and done. So they're kind of back on, you know, in, in the new emerging weeds and stuff like that. Right. So until the water starts to warm up again, then they'll push out and suspend. You're exactly right, Danny. And that's, uh, that's kind of what we've seen for sure. You know, some of those can be really good Junes, honestly. I mean, I remember back, I'm trying to remember, it's probably like Oh seven, eight, maybe even six we had some of those kinds of springs where it was really early and we had some really cool, super cool uh, fishing on those deeper breaks and those initial weeds like you're talking about. I did not do a ton of that last June. And when I did, we did have some, some good success, but sometimes I wonder if it's more of a calendar thing sometimes just in the fact that if I look at my calendar, that third week in June, it seems like is always really solid for trolling. And we've seen that again this past season. So I don't know if there's, you know, the normal migration with spring and post-spawn, like you said, but there's also something to do with the calendar a little bit as well. Yep, for sure. A lot of it, too, is is not just like what the fish are doing. It's a lot of it, too, is what, the, what they're eating and why they're, that's ultimately why they're there, right? The bait fish have a lot to do with it and what their seasonal movements are as well, right? You're spot on, in my opinion. There's a bit of a game changer here, though, too, in the last couple of years with the onset of the zebra mussels in the ultra, ultra clear water. That's changed the pattern a little bit, too. Are you dealing with any zebra mussels up on Eagle at all, Danny? Not yet. I mean, I'm sure it's, you know, a thing coming. It's eventually going to get get everywhere. We actually, this year, for some reason, we actually had dirtier water than normal. Our water was was a greener color. I don't know if it, uh, I'm starting to see an eagle kind of very similar. It hasn't really fully onset yet, but to like what Lake of the Woods gets with that algae bloom and they get that greener type of water. And I'm starting to, to see that on eagle. I don't know if that kind of got brought over from Lake of the Woods and is, is starting to take hold an eagle as well. Um, but we definitely had for some reason, more colored water this year. And I don't know if that kind of contributed to why fish stayed a little bit shallower throughout the year than what they typically do, or if it was, you know, a lack of pressure. Uh, You'd think with, you know, lower water, you wouldn't see necessarily clearer water. But like I said, it was, our water was colored up for, for most of the year. I don't know why. Yeah, it's remarkable to think about, um, you know, you kind of maybe touched on something there, the lack of pressure. Do you think that that played a big factor last season for you up in Canada? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the lack of pressure for just, you know, the whole, throughout the whole COVID deal and the the number of people fishing the fish, um, even when borders opened was still, you know, there was definitely more pressure. I mean, it was good to see boats on the lake again, but uh, the fish had had plenty of time to kind of forget about you know, the normal pressure of what we, we see on Eagle and, uh, the fish were definitely more relating to structure up on the structure and, you know, not seeing as many follows. I mean, seeing a lot of follows, but 
getting a lot more fish to eat out on cast versus boat side, what Eagle Lake's kind of known for, right? So that kind of, you know, that was nice, actually having some fish, some muskies act like, if you want to call it normal muskies, where the bait hits the water three, four cranks, and they, they grab the bait, which was uh, which was really cool to, to actually witness, because in my whole career, you know, guiding on Eagle, coming up through it, I never really got to see that. A lot of it was just boat side, and you know, you'd catch fish out on cast here and there, but you know, as much as 80, 90% of our fish were always caught at the boat, it seemed like. Yeah, I would agree with that 100%. I, it's pretty amazing how the fisheries have changed throughout our neck of the woods as well. And, you know, Miltona has always been known for boat side hits. And some of that's changed a little bit. And I think some of it's due to the zebra mussel and some of it's due to pressure. We talk about pressure quite a bit, right? And one of the topics that uh, I think has been asked a few times over this past winter is electronics and how those electronics are affecting our fish. The neat thing that I always relate these muskies to is whitetails and how they adapt. You know, as we keep invading their territory, guess what? Those whitetail deer, they figure out how to adjust and just live with us, right? And I think the muskies do that as well. And that might mean some different movement that they normally wouldn't do. But when they're being pressured, they're going to go find a comfort zone. What's your feelings on all of that, Danny? Oh, for sure. I, I notice that a lot. And, you know, main thing that I always strive for, even even when, you know, there's not a, like, I'm not dealing with pressure like you guys are down there. But, I mean, it's enough pressure to change fish movements. And I will agree with that 100%. And one thing I'm always looking for is spots away from, you know, close, but not necessarily secondary type spots where these fish seem to, to use and when you find them on them, they're a lot more apt to, to eat a bait and, and catch a fish. They might not be as high a percentage of spot. You might, you know, fish it 10 times and only encounter a fish on it three or four times, but every time you encounter that fish, you catch it. And versus fishing the, you know, the, the milk run spots, the community spots where you might fish it 10 times and see a fish on it eight times, but you won't catch any of them unless the conditions are perfect, unless you're there on, you know, on the moon or a weather front's rolling in or something where the timing is right versus spending a little bit extra time and getting out and finding the little hidden gems that people are bypassing. It might be as simple as, you know, a down tree on, you know, in the back of a bay where you drive by it every time on the way to a good spot and you're like, oh, well, today I'll try it. All of a sudden, here comes one. And you catch it, right? Might be as simple as just a boulder 300 yards down the shoreline from a good spot. Just stuff like that I spend a lot of time looking for. And, you know, nowadays with the electronics, you don't necessarily have to fish it. You can just drive along the shores with your side image, you know, and find that stuff and then turn back and fish it, right? Yeah, that's the amazing part. You know, I mean, we have so many different tools that uh, have been created over the last however many years. And, Side imaging is definitely something that's changed the game. It's amazing to me. I know different anglers that fish Lake of the Woods a ton, you know, and you're fishing a lot of sand. And when you're doing that, I mean, these fish can't hide in the sand, right? So honestly, in a lot of cases, I I know guys aren't even actually casting until they've driven by the spot and go, oh, there's two up there. All right, let's keep going. Oh, well, there's three in this bay. So why don't we hit this bay first? Because we got an extra fish there to deal with, right? So Totally agree with you in the sense of secondary spots can 
really, really produce. And I definitely think that a lot of times they're overlooked, which is kind of a savior in a sense for our own fishing. Yeah. And I mean, that's the thing with musky guys is, you know, we always kind of, or I find myself get stuck in a rut and just fishing, you know, a lot of the same spots over and over because, you know, they've produced and you have a lot of history with them. And, you know, it's musky fishing. It's a game of numbers. The more your bait's in the water, the more times you're going to get bit. And we just get stuck grinding and grinding and grinding on, you know, a lot of the same spots. But, you know, you catch fish on them eventually when the conditions turn right. But if you spend a little time, and it's hard to, like, when the fish are moving, you want to fish a lot of your, you know, your good stuff. But if you can take you know, an hour or two out of every day you're out there when the fish are moving is the, is the key part and just say, okay, this spot looks really good. It's not being hit. It takes 10 minutes. Let's fish it real quick. Right. And that is how you find a lot of new spots that you can put in your pocket, you know, and ultimately catch fish when days that people are seeing fish and not catching them and you're coming in catching two or three is you're, you're fishing fish that have not seen baits and they're not pressured and they're acting you know, like normal, like normal fish on a lot of days and they make mistakes that fish that are seeing baits wouldn't. Yeah. There's no doubt about what you're saying there. And I always encourage everybody to, to do the same thing that you just said, you know, take an hour or two a day and do some exploring. You're going to discover some really cool spots that a lot of times are the, the fish producing spots that you never knew about. Exactly. And it, a lot of times muskies, Everybody, like I said, everybody gets stuck fishing the big complexes and the big points and the, you know, and like I said, they're all great spots, but a lot of times I found these fish will sit on stuff that it's nothing special, but it's like, you know, a little, just a little stop sign versus, you know, a set of traffic lights. Right. And they'll, they hold up on it and they use it. The main thing is, is you, you can't over, you can't overlook a lot of the smaller stuff. Well, a lot of times it's about you being uncomfortable is where those fish are actually comfortable. And so definitely encourage people to hit new spots. One of the things that I know, you know, going into this or after this whole season that we really dealt with was low water. And you'd mentioned that earlier. How did that affect your fishing, Danny? And I have a couple of things in, in my pocket to talk about in that as well. I'm really curious. I know that you dealt with it on Eagle. I dealt with it down here in my neck of the woods. Jeff over there got pounded with rain so bad it was insane, and we couldn't get a drop. I mean, I didn't mow the lawn for like three months. I'm curious how you dealt with that, how it affected your fishing, and did it help you find some new spots? Like I said, we came into the year with extremely little water, and I don't know if you noticed it by where you guys were. It wasn't. Another trend I noticed, too, it seemed like was, smaller baits were definitely outproducing, you know, a lot of the bigger type stuff that we throw even later into like, you know, end of July, August, where most of the time we're throwing, you know, the bigger double tens and, you know, bigger rubber type stuff. I was catching uh, most of my fish. I mean, I basically throughout the whole season, I clipped on a, a seven, nine trigger for, for my guy in the front of the boat. And I caught the bulk majority of my fish on smaller, smaller bucktails for sure this year. And even throwing, you know, a lot of the smaller crankbaits and stuff. I don't know if it, if it was a water temp deal or if it was, um, you know, like I said, a lot of the fish were up shallower that you could fish that bait a little bit more effective up shallow or what it was. But it definitely seemed like this year a smaller bait 
was definitely more effective. I don't know if you saw that down down by you or not. Well, it's strange for me because I struggle fishing small baits, Danny. And, you know, the 7.9, there's good reason that you like that bait. I mean, you helped develop that bait. So that one's kind of your baby. Definitely an effective bait, that's for sure. And we caught fish on it. But I did not downsize a ton like you're talking about. So I, I guess for me, I've spent a lot of time throwing the new grenade, which is a bigger bait, right? It was interesting. I fished a lot of deeper stuff than I normally would. But what I did find as the season progressed, these fish kind of hung up like in that 8 to 12 foot mark. And usually in the month of September, when we first start getting those cold fronts, you know, there's a push to the shallow. Now, don't get me wrong, certain bodies of water help maintain that shallow water bite. But a lot of these fish did not seem to slide up right on top. They were like in that mid zone. Is that though because of the clear water? Potentially. Yeah, with that clear water, the the eight to twelve is was used to be their four to five, right? Yeah, there's a lot of truth to that. There's different times when we'll still see them in that two to four. You know what I mean? But it, it yeah. wasn't like your traditional. But now some of that could have been due to some of the shallower water. I mean, the year before our water's been clear, very clean for the last couple seasons. So maybe even like eight years worth already. But the thing that I, I'm really curious about is I think our water levels were so low, I mean, to a point where certain bodies of water, I couldn't even get my boat in anymore. It was getting scary on a couple of the bodies that I was fishing. I'm like, man, I don't know. If we don't get rain here in the next couple of weeks, I might be completely out of the game because I don't know if we're going to be able to fish, you know? And I do think that maybe some of that changed some of the game as well. Well, for sure. To circle back on what I, you know, what I was finding with that low water this year, as you know, a lot of the the fish were still using a lot of the normal spots they were. They just, I mean, it was the the sweet spot on the sweet spot was not in their comfort zone anymore. Like a lot of times where they would normally sit, it was out of the water, so they had no choice but to find you know a secondary spot off of you know, off of the, the normal type stuff. And I mean, and too, with the low water, like you said, we got to, you actually got to learn a lot on how the spots are. Cause you could see, you know, visually see on how the spots actually ran and you could see why on a normal year when the water's normal, why those fish would sit right there. So, you know, a lot of times I would be going along, even though the fish weren't coming from where they normally are, I would still punch a waypoint saying, you know, from going past history, every time you'd fish the spot, you couldn't see how it laid. That's why they're there. You know what I mean? So I would punch a waypoint on my unit for, you know, when the water does come back up. So you can just, you automatically have it in your graph, so you know, for later in the, in the future coming up. You know, another thing too, like with the weed bites, with the low water, we had exceptional weeds this year, the best weeds I've seen in a lot of years. But a lot of the weed beds you couldn't even hardly fish because they were topped out so thick that you couldn't fish them like normal. So you had to, you know, fish the deeper points that weren't topped out. So it it made it a lot easier to fish the weed beds instead of fishing the whole, you know, half mile stretch. I would just side image it, find the, you know, the deeper stuff that wasn't topped out, put waypoints off it, and you could just literally bounce from deeper weed point to deeper weed point instead of trying to fight through all the slop, right? 
And then, you know, another thing too, with the lower water, it created a lot of spots that were typically too deep that you would overlook. So it created a lot of new spots that fish were using because it was right in that, that depth zone that they were, that they were using that you would normally not even cast. And then later into the summer, as a lot of the fish, it seems like that end of July phase, for some reason, we get a lot of fish leaving the, you know, the points and the shoreline and the weed type stuff. And they make a seasonal movement to like a lot of the walleye humps. A lot of the humps that were generally, once again, you know, too deep to necessarily cast effectively, we were able to, to cast and there were fish coming off the tops of them that you would have to either jig or, or troll over and you're able to, you know, contact those fish casting, which was really nice. I think one of the things that you touched on there too, Danny, I mean, it's all good information, but the one thing that kind of reiterated was the thought of finding spots because you could visually see them. As an example, we have some boulders scattered out different places in shallow areas as well as deep. And, and one of the coolest things about this past season that I've seen was that we could truly visually see exactly what I've been fishing for however many years, right? You could just pull right up exactly. there. It was so cool, you know, and hopefully people out there utilize that time to actually mark it out like you just said as an example. Well, yeah, it takes one second to press a button on your graph and it's there forever, right? I always try, if Mother Nature is going to give it to you, take advantage of it. And, you know, when when you have the chance, you know, like I said, do it. And it's like, once again, I can't can't stress enough is once you have it, it's there forever and on your graph and it, it just all kind of makes sense and it creates a whole picture as to, you know, you catch a fish off this spot, you catch a fish off that spot. There's more to it than luck, right? And then you can start, you know, creating a, a pattern and just running certain type of stuff, right? Versus fishing everything and wasting time on stuff that fish might not be using, right? Oh, absolutely. I, I can't uh, disagree with that whatsoever. I, I think a lot of times that us as anglers, we sometimes forget how easy it can be, you know, and we overlook the simplistic side of things. So I definitely spent time doing that. And a lot of times what I do too, Danny, is, that, you know, it seems like our mornings, our AMs early, are really calm water, you know, we're not dealing with the big wind as the day progresses, it always gets windier. You know, if you go out there and you just buzz around, you can learn so much, even on a high water year. But this last last year with low water, it just became a super, super effective tool. That's for sure. And marking that all out is only going to benefit you in your future. Oh, yeah, for sure. And like another thing before I forget to talk about it, like not to bypass summer, but I wanted to get into that like late September time with the low water we had this year and, and some stuff that I found that I overlooked for years and years and years and, you know, and caught a pile of, of in, a, in a couple of really big fish this year when the fishing was completely dead fishing, you know, the normal main lake, main lake type of stuff. You know, I'm sure you guys saw it down there, you know, when it should have been, wearing long johns and you know your cold weather gear in the first first part of october we were in shorts and t-shirts up here and it completely changed the whole fall bite 
And, you know, the sucker bite was non-existent for us for probably the first two weeks of October. It was a really weird fall up here. I don't know, like, if you guys saw that down there or not. Yeah, we absolutely did. And it was kind of bizarre. I mean, I fished, our season closes December 1st. So we fished right up till December 1st. We definitely did not have to bundle up like normal. Don't get me wrong. There was a few cold days in November, but uh, for the most part, it was pretty pleasant. And that definitely throws a wrench into the whole system as well. Yeah, it's uh, like normally, you know, you know, from the middle of September on, we're fishing all out in the big body, main lake, reefs, rock points, you know, Cisco whitefish spawning areas. And uh, normally by then, you know, you can start to see the bait fish starting to, you know, migrate towards those areas and staging for the spawn. And I just wasn't seeing that this year. And like we were fishing the whole day and encountering, you know, one or two fish. And I was, you know, it just, it wasn't making sense to me what was going on. And, you know, there was just, the bait wasn't there. You, you'd have to go out to like 50, 60, 70 feet to find the bait versus, you know, the bait would normally be in that 30 to 40 foot range. And then in the evening, they would just slide up. They weren't even in the right mindset in the fall, at the beginning of the fall to even to start making their seasonal movements yet. And, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't making sense to me and I was struggling and I was just like, what is going on? And it actually happened. What actually kind of turned me on to it is one morning I was walking down to the dock and there was like a 50 incher laying in the, in the shallow weeds right by the boats. And I was, you know, in the fall that, that never happened. Like we never, those fish are gone. And I was like, what is going on here? And we had that really warm weather and it was flat, calm, high bluebird sun. I mean, it was like 75 degrees. So I was like, you know, we're just going to completely go and try something different. And I started running all like bays, like where you would normally see them like in June, like three, four foot, five foot bays that still had green weed in it. And those fish were crawling in there. They were, I don't know what, if it was just, you know, if the lake was still in turnover phase and those fish were really craving the, the last of the weeds. But I was going out and, you know, seeing 15, 20 fish a day. I mean, I had one day we caught four. The biggest was 54 and a half. And those fish were up in two or three foot of water in, in pike water slop. And the only way we could catch them was throwing top waters. And that was it. And it was a really, really cool pattern. And it's something definitely I'm going to have to keep my eye open for, you know, in the future, if we get, you know, something of a little bit warmer trend. I think the neat thing that you talked about there is how you were actually watching the environment. You happen to see that fish and you adapted. And that's where kind of that piece to the puzzle went together. It happens all the time. But I think a lot of times as muskie anglers, we're just like you said it earlier, we're stuck in a rut. We don't actually try to go explore. Hey, there's times when that is the only key that actually keeps you in fish. Well, I mean, it just, it got to be, you know, it was such a grind. I mean, yeah, fishing the main lake stuff, there was some fish out there. Don't get me wrong. You have a crack or two a day and I was just like, there's got to be something better. There's got to be something else out there. And once again, those fish, they were up in there and they like I've talked about it before, they're unpressured and they were, you know, they were all fresh fish that hadn't seen baits. And it was a, you know, it was a, an awesome bite and it lasted for, you know, a couple of weeks. And 
it was something definitely to keep your eye open. I mean, not, I mean, I think a lot of it was the, the lake was turning over late just because of the warmer weather at, you know, later than normal where typically we see that, that weed bite in like the first part of September versus, you know, the last part of September. It definitely opened my eyes. And I don't know, like if I said, or like when we said earlier, that water was a little dirtier this year, if that contributed to it as well. It's definitely something to think of in the fall. Not all the fish are out deep. The fit, like there was a lot of fish up shallow where they were being unharassed by, by fishermen. I would agree. Now, as you progress into your October, how late do you actually usually fish, Danny, for muskies? It's so weather dependent up here. You know, some years we can fish into, you know, the middle of November, which, you know, this year we are pretty much shut down after about, it was the first week we got a major snowfall up here. We got like 25 inches of snow in one snowfall, like the 10th of November. And that just shut the world down up here. Like as far as guiding day in, day out, I want to say we run till about the 20th of October. And then it's kind of all weather dependent. If the weather looks good, we'll get some guys up and we'll fish. But um, as far as knowing for sure that I'm going to be guiding every day, I'd say around the 20th of October. Do you ever finish your season trolling as well, Danny? Are you doing any of that type of fishing? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I definitely, as soon as it starts getting, you know, I like to cast and run, run suckers if I can. It's more of we're forced to just because the temperature is so cold and everything's freezing up. But um, there are times, you know, where trolling definitely outproduces casting and even running suckers. A lot of times, like I said, when those ciscos and whitefish, they get up on, you know, big, expansive, I guess if you want to call it shoals, where to cast it and run a sucker, it'd take you four or five hours to fish the whole thing versus, you know, putting baits down and trolling. And you can make 20 passes along that spot and cover it at all different depths and all different speeds versus, you know, running at one time with, with casting and, and, and suckers. You know, the whole trolling game seems to be underutilized for the most part. It's definitely a component that can change your whole world. Right. And I, I just, it's amazing to me how overlooked it is. Don't get me wrong. I, there's well, not something special about catching a fish on a cast. I mean, I get that. But uh, you also need to adjust and, and make some of those changes when uh, when that casting bite isn't working. And especially up here, like on Eagle, it's, there's a lot of structure. And to troll it and to troll it right, I actually enjoy it more than casting because you're so in tune to your electronics to, you know, to structure troll a spot and keep your boat in, you know, 14 to 18 feet of water you're constantly on the motor you're constantly in you're out you're speeding up you're speeding down you're you know you're coming up over stuff your baits are grinding on rocks you're coming down like it's not just you know a lot of people associate trolling with throwing some baits out taking a nap it's not like that up here if you're if you're going to do it right and you know and contour troll you have to be on your game and you have to be watching your graph the whole time and you know i've caught some fish over open water but our open water is just so immense up here where um unless you can find one little basin that they're in it's like finding a needle in a haystack you know you're kind of forced to you know contour troll and you know it's the highest percentage in my opinion and to do it right like i said you're on it you got to be on it or you're going to be hung up all the time agreed i that's the neat thing about trolling and and it's in the open water as well i mean there's 
there's some areas that hold fish. And once you start keying in on some of that, you can hit that, you know, it's almost a milk run of trolling, right? So you go boom, boom, you're hitting all the different spots that you've caught fish and it it usually produces. But like you said, you got to be in tune with your electronics. You got to be dialing it in the whole time. There's a lot to that. And I guess some of the problem is, is if you're sitting in the passenger seat and somebody else is running the boat, guess what? You might not be as in tune, but man, look over their shoulder, watch what's going on and try to identify what, what they're actually doing. I think you're going to learn a ton. And what I do too, like when I'm trolling, I always, you know, we're only allowed one line guy here. My outside rod, you know, I'll typically put in the rod holder and like my inside rod, I'm usually running a longer line for my inside, something like a, a grandma or a Jake, something a little shallower running, something in that 10 to 14 foot zone. And I'm having them, I'm, I'm having them rip it. You know, they're, they're working the rod versus just putting it in the rod holder. I've had a ton more success, you know, especially when you're, you're coming along the shore and the, you know, the point's coming out and you come across that point and they, okay, you tell them, start ripping that bait and that bait clears that point, they're ripping it and boom, they get hit. I've had a lot of success with guys, you know, rip trolling versus just putting the rods in the rod holder and, and going along. Yeah. One thing that I used to utilize quite a bit was doing that same deal. You know, you, you got that rod in your hand, you're pulsating that bait and jerk trolling bulldogs. It can be so effective in that late fall. It's amazing yeah. that, what that'll yeah. do. And two, like I find, like, like I said, I'm always contour trolling. And if you got the rod in the guy's hand and you're coming up over the point, you can say, okay, lift the rod, lift the rod, lift the rod, get that bait to kind of climb up over that point and climb back down versus, you know, a lot of times right where that fish is sitting, the rods and the rod holder and you're snagged. You can just control the depth. You can have the guy control the depth of the bait up and over those points and, and work the bait effectively versus just, you know, grinding rock and eventually getting snagged. That is another, another key part to it too, is one of the main reasons why I'm holding the rod. So what other electronics are you utilizing, Danny, today? I know you, you talked a little bit more about side imaging and that's something that, uh, we've talked about over the years. Are you incorporating any live type technology at all? I'm running the, the, the Lowrance active target. I have it on a pole mounted over the side of the boat. I got it late last fall, so I didn't get a ton of time to use it. But one thing like um, what I found was a lot of time, like, you know, running normal 2d sonar when we're casting a spot and running a sucker, um, you know, a fish follows in, doesn't bite at the boat, and then sinks down and versus always yelling at the guy, which way did the fish go? Which way did the fish go? So I can try and get the sucker on the fish. Now it's as simple as you reach over, grab your rod, spin it around. Oh, the fish is over here. You move the boat over there and you drag that sucker right by him, right? And I got a lot more bites that way just by being able to, in a sense, chase the fish around and get my live bait in front of them. Yeah, it's amazing. I've heard a ton about that where guys are really utilizing the live side of it for their suckers. Um, I'm not much of a sucker yeah. guy, so I can't really talk on that deal. There's a lot of tool or a lot of uses to that tool, that's for sure. And I, I think we're just scratching the surface at this point. You know, it was hard. Like, I didn't have it on a trolling motor, and like, I always fish out of the back of the boat. So, it's hard to kind of, it was hard for me. There was times where you could kind of position it where the guy could cast and you could see the bait coming in. Most of the time I just used it for follows and being able to kind of chase the fish around 
and, you know, get the bait back in front of them. That was a main, main thing because, you know, like I said, running normal T- 2D sonar, yeah, some fish would slide right underneath the boat and you could mark them on, you know, your normal graph and, and catch them. But you would be surprised how many of those fish, once they follow, they just head out into the abyss. Like they just, they keep moving. You pull them off the spot and they're gone. And like, there'd be times I would chase that fish for 60, 70 yards before I could get my bait back in front of them just like out over 30, 40 feet of water. And then there was also times where that fish would spin around and he would head right back in the shore. Like it was, there was no rhyme, no reason as to what the fish did every time, which was, you know, kind of in a sense frustrating, but it was, I think a lot of it had to deal with the attitude of the fish. So it seemed like the more active the fish, the quicker he would spin around and head back towards the the structure, it seemed like. Well, those are the things that make the difference, though. Those little, you know, identifying exactly what they're going to do, right? So you you just said it. I mean, that seemed to be the more active fish. That's pretty interesting. And maybe, you know, you just hit it at the wrong time and you can come back to that same fish. Exactly. I mean, it's just all little little tools to kind of put pieces to the puzzle as it was hard with, like, because everything up here is so jagged and so so rocky it was hard to go along like i know a lot of the guys like down by you are actually physically seeing the fish before they even cast to it it was hard to do that here i never really could ever pinpoint the fish where it was sitting up high enough off the bottom where you could get you know a good good view of it because most time you know you're running parallel to shore so it's just you know hard color that you're looking against right but once they got, you know, out in the flat and in the mud there, you could chase them around basically all day if you wanted to. Yeah, that's awesome. I utilized, let's see here, two winters ago, maybe three winters ago. I can't even remember. I ended up buying the uh, Garmin LiveScope ice bundle and I utilized it in ice fishing quite a bit. And last year I started incorporating it with my trolling. So I was able to watch one or two baits and, and it, it definitely triggered some fish for us. So we're trolling the rods in the holder and literally you'd have that fish following and you just grab your line and just pull up like four feet. And a lot of times those fish would back off. And as soon as you drop that line, it was like right back in their face and they just couldn't resist to eat it. So it definitely helped me put some more fish in the boat last year. I mean, at this point in, you know, the age of fishing that we're at, don't get me wrong. You can catch fish, you know, running a normal sonar and, and casting, but, the way I feel, if you don't have it, you're not in the game anymore. <laughs> like it's everybody, you know, it's, it's taken the world by storm. Not, you know, not necessarily just for musky fishing, but for everything. And I, I feel like it's just the tip of the, the spear for, for using it for muskies. Like I know walleye fishing, it's invaluable. Like the, the days of, you know, idling humps to find fish and then, you know, dropping a waypoint or throwing a buoy and, and fishing that school of fish. Now you drive to the hump, you throw it over the side and you scan around and, Oh, there they are. You go over, you catch them. They move 50 feet. Oh, they're over here. You just, it just makes everything so much easier. And you can actually, once you start looking at it and spending some time with it, you can, you can actually tell the species of fish and how big they are. And you can actually kind of weed out, you know, the smaller fish and, and not have to catch them. Are you utilizing it in your ice game as well, Danny? Oh, yeah. I don't necessarily, like, I use it for, you know, like, when I'm jigging and everything for walleyes. 
but I use it more for finding the structure. Like, you know, like I said, our, our basins where it's loaded with walleye humps, you have a waypoint. Well, you know, it might be 30, 40, 50 feet off of where you want to be. I mean, it just, it cuts the, the drilling time and the, the walking around time just makes life so much easier you drill a hole you drop it down the hole okay here's the top you can walk 50 feet drill a hole you're on it right it's i use it more for you know and it's invaluable for finding structure too like on you know the little spots and then you can see exactly why the fish is sitting there right it's just a hole it's it's like looking through the water through a window basically like if you were down there scuba diving is the way i kind of look at it and it's definitely a good way to look at it i mean i like I said, there's so many different ways to utilize it. My big hang-up with live stuff has always been that, man, if you're not paying attention to the screen, you're missing out on fishing, right? So it's kind of a, a mind struggle in my mind. A lot of times I think we get too hung up on just sitting there staring at the screen, and, and live presents that issue. So I don't know. There's a time and a place, right? And I think uh, yeah, as I really- I'll definitely grow in what that all means. Yeah, like and like I said, I like I I, I I was using it, but I wasn't for the musky side of it. I wasn't looking for muskies necessarily. Once you know, I had a follow, or you know, then I would use it to you know position the boat to get another crack at the fish. Right? I wasn't you know staring at it all day, driving around the whole lake trying to find the fish with it, like. And there are times where, where people are doing that. I have uh, a buddy that was down in your neck of the woods, and they literally would drive around till they saw the fish laying in the weeds or laying by a log, and they would cast at it, and they were catching them that way. To me, I don't know if I could, part of musky fishing is, cat, you know, is actually fishing, right? Like, I don't know if I could do that part of it. Yeah, I totally understand that. That's a whole different game, right? I mean, it's it's amazing how people have adapted to use these as their tools. And, I mean, like I said, there's so many different uses that we could come up with in time. You know, people are going to start thinking about different ways to use it. And I don't know. It, it's intriguing. That's for sure. Why don't we kind of yeah. change the whole game here now and kind of maybe try to close this thing up with, what you're thinking about for this next season and, and kind of what your uh, what your goals are and potentially how your game plan is going to be to attack these these spots that you learned about this past season. Well, you know, like like we said, we're gonna more than likely, unless something dramatically changes here, um, we're more than likely gonna have a late spring and, you know, higher water. So, you know, the way we've fished the last couple of years you know, our musky season opens the third Saturday in June. On a normal high water, you know, average spring, those fish are just finishing up spawning. And the last couple of years, they've been, you know, done spawning out of the shallows. And they are, they're already setting up on the rock bars, the shallow rock bars, the points that are, you know, outside of the spawning grounds, if you want to call it. So like this year, obviously, when, you know, musky season rolls around, a lot of it's water temp and, and all that. I'm going to be fishing, you know, the more traditional stuff, you know, real close to the spawning bays, um, you know, casting smaller baits. A lot of, you know, that most of the time they're in that, you know, a lot of times you can see them on a normal, normal late spring. You can see them actually like laying up in the bays where the, 
the reeds are just starting to grow and the, you know, you start to see a little bit of the cabbage starting to kind of come up, you know, and obviously go from there. And, you know, main thing though is, is just kind of fish a little bit of it all and then let the fish tell you what they want and where they are, you know, and hopefully the way things are looking now is we might have, you know, a little bit of a normal season with, you know, guests up here. They're starting to relax some of the restrictions at the borders. So, Hopefully, we'll kind of see Eagle Lake returning back to normal, which will be a very welcome sight, in in my opinion. You know, having a you know some clients up here, you know, and be able to operate a full season for a change because you know last year we only got two and a half months in after that when they finally opened the border. That'll be a very welcome sight. You know, obviously, go out and keep catching fish and and doing as good as I can do, and you know, we'll see what see what happens. I wish you guys the best up there. That's for sure. I know it's been a rough couple of years and, and I've talked to just this past weekend at the Minnesota Muskie Expo. Uh, I talked to a bunch of different Canadian resorts and I know everybody up there needs it. So hopefully it'll start changing and, and you'll get to those people back up into that neck of the woods. That's all we can hope for, right? Just try and get a little bit of normal, normalcy back in our life. And the thing is, you know, it's, it's a very, unique opportunity right now still you know if a guy can get to canada and has everything that he has to be required to enter canada i would suggest you know now is the time to experience some of the best fishing canada has to offer you know it's been basically unharassed for the last two years right and the fish the eagle lake is at a high peak not only because of lack of pressure but we're just on a an upcycle of you know fish numbers and big fish being in the lake and uh if a guy can do it now is the time to do it to to experience some of the best fishing you'll probably ever see canada has to offer danny what are the requirements right now to get across the border so right now you have to be fully vaccinated and you have to have a negative covid test across they just started accepting rapid tests so you can get a rapid test which still has to be done at say like a CVS or a Walgreens or something like that. And once you have that rapid test, it's good for 24 hours and you can cross. It's, it's really simple. It's, I've talked to some people that have crossed here in the last, you know, couple weeks and it's not really that big of a, a headache to get across. That's good. I know you said possibly earlier that they were talking about changing some of that and maybe making it a little easier for the summer too. Yeah, so they're talking about potentially, I mean, this is all, you know, kind of really, really new in the works. They're talking about potentially waiving a negative test for vaccinated people. So that'll make, you know, life easier. And then hopefully, you know, once once that progression gets rolling, you know, the next step is to, you know, offer some way for unvaccinated people to cross. But, I mean, I don't know how far away that is yet. We'll have to see. But hopefully... You know, we're heading in the right direction to make, you know, it easier for people to get up here. And that's, you know, in my opinion, that's, that's the main thing, right? Yep. That's definitely the main thing. We haven't heard much from Jeff in this podcast. Jeff, are you still awake? Yeah. I'm just getting a little work done over here. Listening to you go, you go. Brad, you just kept the conversation rolling. First of all, you talked about early season muskies, which I didn't even fish early season last year. You talked about low water. Again, I didn't fish low water last year, so I was pretty much left out of the conversation. <laughs> well, that's only one person's uh, fault. That's only one person's fault? Yeah, I would agree. That's my fault. But 
Hey, that's fine. <laughs> I got a little bit of work done over here, so that's good. Oh, that's awesome. Well, one thing I will say is I just one thing I will say is I am excited for this coming season is I just got my Team Rhino order officially in my hands. So I am excited to put a bunch of those baits that I got to use. So we'll see how that goes. Yeah, we certainly appreciate that. It'll be fun, and like I said, uh, hopefully we can get a bunch of people up here and catch a bunch of big fish coming up here this summer. All right, Danny, lots of good information in this one. Of course, I didn't bring any of it to the table, but that's pretty typical. I want to thank you for taking some time out of your schedule and coming out and talking to us. But before we take off, if somebody wants to come up to Eagle Lake and book a trip with you, what's the best way they can do that? Well, there's a couple ways. You know, you can you know look me up on Facebook and on Instagram at Danny Herbeck, or you can contact Andy Myers Lodge and talk to Julian. He's the owner there. He can set everything up, or you can contact me personally at you know on my phone at 807-216-8866, and I can kind of get the ball rolling for you to uh, get something booked, booked through camp, and we can go from there. Sounds great, Danny. Once again, we want to thank you for taking time out of your schedule. I know you're busy ice fishing and, and things like that. And we want to thank our listeners for taking time out of their schedule to put up with us again for another episode. And we will catch everybody with a new one next week. <laughs>